This film is lit, the podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. And because so many children were always begging him to tell and tell again the story of his adventures on the peach, he thought it would be nice if one day he sat down and wrote a book. So he did. It's James and the Giant Peach, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's June, approaching the end of June. I turned 35 in four days, right? <laughs> well, by the time they're hearing this, it's well, in sorry. one day. <laughs> if you're hearing this when it came when it comes out, uh, not on the patron feed, yes, I turned 35 tomorrow. As we're recording this, it's four days from now. So this is my birthday pick. I decided I wanted to do James and the Giant Peach because it was one of my favorite movies as a child. I haven't seen it in probably close to 20 years-ish, I would have to guess. Uh, and uh, I had never read the book. So I read the book now. We've watched the movie again. We have quite a bit to talk about. I think we have all of our segments. Uh, just a warning, I'm going to be talking a lot because I read normal. I already talk a lot because I'm a talky person, uh, <laughs> which I know annoys some people. But uh, I, I'm going to be talking a lot because I did do other reading, so I'm going to talk even more than I normally do. So just strap in for that or turn it off if you don't like listening to me. <laughs> Here we go. We're going to start with a brief summary and let me sum up. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. James is a happy little boy enjoying life with his parents until one day they are unceremoniously gobbled up by a rampaging rhinoceros. James is then forced to move in with his two wicked aunts, Sponge and Spiker. They mistreat James horribly abusing and starving him, and keeping him isolated and alone. One day in the garden, James encounters an odd man who gives him a bag full of magic crocodile tongues with the promise that they will make his dreams come true. James immediately spills the tongues, and they worm into the ground under an old dead peach tree. Almost immediately, a peach begins to grow on the tree, becoming impossibly large. Spiker and Sponge decide to exploit the peach as a tourist attraction and force James into upkeep of the grounds around the peach. The first night, as he's cleaning, James discovers a small tunnel into the peach and ventures in. There, he meets a wild gang of nearly human-sized insects. A spider, a centipede, a grasshopper, a worm, a glowworm, and a silkworm. The group decides to set off for greener pastures, and the peach rolls into the ocean, bowling over Spiker and Sponge in the process. Once in the ocean, they're attacked by sharks, capture seagulls to get the peach airborne, and spend time getting to know each other as they venture into the unknown. Ultimately, after a series of wacky encounters, they arrive in New York City, where they land on the Empire State Building. James introduces his insect friends to the New Yorkers, and they are quickly accepted into the community. 
James uses the pit of the peach as a home in Central Park and spends the rest of his days entertaining all of his new friends, both human and insect alike. There you go. So that was the book, but it's basically the movie barring a few changes, which we'll discuss. But overall, it's very, very close. Mm -hmm. So we just did one summary that time. But I do actually have a few guess who's. So let's go ahead and play Guess Who. Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Okay. These are fairly easy. Uh, there's an, uh, there's really only three that I could find. And I actually just, I forgot to write them down as I was reading, but I was able to go back pretty quick. And these are the only three that are even remotely uh, applicable for our game. <laughs> but I also think they're pretty easy. So <laughs> I think you'll get them. I did do some editing and changing of words to make it even a little less easy than it already was, but it's still very easy. So three of them first up, they were enormously fat and very short. They had small piggy eyes, a sunken mouth, and one of those white flabby faces that looks exactly as though it had been boiled. They were like a great white, soggy, overboiled cabbage. Hmm. <laughs> well, I think here, um, knowing what I know of, of this character, I, I think I'm going to have to go with Aunt Sponge. You would be correct. So I changed it to gender neutral pronouns just uh -huh. to make it maybe a not that there's anybody else that it could really. Even yeah, there, be. there aren't a lot of human characters no. in this. And that's story the thing anyway. is that that's the other thing is that and the descriptions of spoilers. None of these are the insects. There are aren't really descriptions of the insects. There are, but they're like. When they're first introduced, it's literally just there was a. a there was a grasshopper. <laughs> there was a centipede. There, and you just, they relying on you knowing what those things look like. Right. There are descriptions of some features here and there, but it's kind of sporadically. Yeah. These ones are actually like when these characters are introduced, you get like character descriptions. So next up, an old man in a crazy dark green suit emerged from the bushes. He was a very small old man, but he had a huge bald head and a face that was covered all over with bristly, bristly black whiskers. He stood there leaning on his stick. Uh, I'm going to say that this is the old man who gives James the crocodile tongues. Yes. He does not have a name. He doesn't have a name. In the book or the movie. Yeah. In the movie, they gave him the distinct feature of having like an old like military. Mm -hmm. I think he has like badges and medals, I, I think, or something like that, like a yeah. military uniform. In the book, he's just described as wearing like a green suit. Yeah. As mm -hmm. I just read. Uh, no mention of any like medals or, or anything like that. But yes, that is that character who gives him the crocodile tongue. And then finally, I think you'll get this one. <laughs> they were lean and tall and bony, and they wore steel-rimmed spectacles that fixed onto the end of their nose with a clip. They had a screeching voice and long, wet, narrow lips. And whenever they got angry or excited, little flecks of spit would come shooting out of their mouth as they talked. Well, I guess this has to be Ant Spiker. <laughs> this is Ant Spiker, yes. Uh, and the movie, again, it pretty much spot on for mm -hmm. both, of, uh, both of the ants. They just, just went with the description and the actual illustrations from... I don't, I don't know when these illustrations are from. I did not look into that. If these are original, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, those are Quentin Blake, which I'm not sure exactly when the Quentin Blake illustrations were done. Yeah, but it wouldn't have to even be original because the movie came out in what, 90? My forgot. movie came out in 96. 96. So even if this was a later edition. Yeah. Illustrations, copyright 1995. So potentially, because the illustrations in the book mm -hmm. look pretty much like mm -hmm. the characters in the movie. Obviously way more stylized. Yeah. But uh, not particularly far off. So, yes. 
yeah, you nailed it. I like I said, I those are James doesn't get a description. Mm-hmm. He's just James, uh, and that's like all the humans basically. There might be some descriptions at the end of like, but I don't even think so because none of those characters are aimed named. They he interacts with a few like firemen and stuff at the end. Yeah. But I don't think any of those characters are named, so I, I don't think they get a description from my memory. Okay, you nailed it. Crushed. Guess who? Three out of three. But now Katie has quite a few questions for me that she wants to find out. Was that in the book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? All right, so my first question right off the bat here. Are James's parents eaten by an angry rhinoceros that comes out of nowhere? Yes, this is the second. Pa- I, I knew this about the from the movie having seen the movie i knew mm-hmm. this about the story and it's literally the second paragraph of the book uh they are eaten by uh, a rhinoceros that escapes from the london zoo uh, it says in full daylight on a crowded street by an enormous angry rhinoceros who escaped from the london zoo i will say the movie feels like it makes it a bit more nebulous as to if this is actually what happened or if mm-hmm. this is just something that like maybe the ants are telling him happened or you know what i mean yeah. i i got the vibe in the movie because we never actually see the rhinoceros or anything and the rhinoceros we do see is a big sort of like yeah it's like a like a smoke monster a phantom, demon yes. thing yeah whereas in the book it seems pretty explicit that they're actually and now eaten by a rhino is re- kind of ridiculous inherently you would mm-hmm. you would assume which is the joke is what makes it funny because you would say well you know they got trampled by right. a rhino or something would be like the way you would most likely be killed if you were killed by a rhinoceros it would not you know they were impaled by the horn or something but being eaten by a rhinoceros is very funny again whether or not that actually happened i'm you know who knows? I don't think we have to know. So, Does James make a paper lantern with his birthday candle and uh, set it free into the night? No. No, he does not. And this is a moment that I really love in the film. It's really stuck out to me and it's stuck with me all these years for whatever reason. I think there's something very tactile about that whole scene where he creates the potato chip hot air bag or mm-hmm. hot air balloon. The way he folds it and then like blows air into it and then lights a little candle. I always thought it was so cool. And I always wanted to try it as a kid. It's also just like <laughs> that, like when you see some kid do like, like, wait, you can do that. Like, like mm-hmm. as a little kid watching that scene, I was like, wait, that's possible. You can like put a candle in a, in a paper bag and turn it into a hot air balloon. What? Again, for whatever reason, I just, I really, that scene always really stuck with me. It does not come from the book, uh, but I do love it as a movie edition. One, just uh, for whatever reason, it stuck with me. But two, I also think it's a very kind of fun tease as to what's coming with the peach mm-hmm. you know going yeah, airborne sure. uh you know floating away to greener pastures i think having that mirroring that early teasing that early with the with the paper lantern makes a lot of sense um so in the movie prior to uh, james's parents being unceremoniously gobbled up they talk about going to visit new york city Mm -hmm. Um, and specifically like the Empire State Building, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then from there on in the story, James is kind of fixated on this idea of like New York City, great place to live, and I'm going to escape there someday. Is that similar to the book at all? No, there is not really any setup that the movie, none of the setup that is there in the movie comes from the book. Uh, And I do like this better about the movie. Uh, the movie, the book just kind of jumps in. His parents die immediately. Like I said, mm-hmm. second paragraph, and he goes to live with his aunts. And that's about all we know of his backstory. Uh, well, there's not any relate. We don't see him interacting with his parents or anything like that. Um, 
I do like all of this kind of setup in the film. Uh, we, the, him and his parents see the Empire State Building cloud, uh, and they talk about planning to visit New York City. I also really like the way the movie takes this scene and grounds his dreams of of getting away in this physical thing with the the like travel book of mm-hmm. New York. Uh, and then later his aunts mock him about this dream of going to New York and like physically tear up this travel uh, book thing that he has. Uh, I like all of those little details. None of that comes from the book. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes with some of the other characters, but I do, I do really like giving it a more concrete aspirational end point. Of yeah. Like, let's get to New York city in the book. He just ends up in New York city and it's like, Oh, Hey, cool. We're in New York City. And he, I think he might even mention in the book when they get there, I'm trying to remember, it, that he might have the thought that his dad told him about New York City or something like that when yeah. he arrives there. But it's not anything that's set up ahead of time. Like the, okay. of going. The idea so the movie there. kind of does more of like a plant and a payoff yes. than the book yes. does. Yeah. Okay. Does James rescue a spider from Spiker and Sponge? Um, part one of my question here. And then part two does that spider turn out to be Miss Spider? No, that does not happen. And I like this a lot in the movie. Again, um, I like it also. The movie also kind of sets up the grasshopper. We see the mm-hmm. little candle thing that was on his yeah, birthday yeah, yeah. cake is like a little grasshopper candle holder thing. Uh, obviously, they set up the spider that he he kind of saves uh, and becomes friends with uh, that becomes Miss Spider. And there might be some other references in the movie that I missed to like the worm and other. I, there's possible that the movie set up other characters that I just wasn't didn't notice. Um, so we move forward a little bit. Um, James is out in the garden and uh, does a random man appear and give him a bag of magic crocodile tongues. As spoiled by guess who? Yes, <laughs> uh, this character is basically identical he just appears in their garden one day and is like, hey, kid, you want this bag of crocodile tongues? <laughs> and James is like, OK, uh, there's a little detail uh, I like in the movie that is not included in the book that I just like because it, it calls back to the other things that the movies do or set up, which is that he gives him the crocodile tongues in the potato chip bag lantern that he folded up. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, my bag. I thought that was clever in the book. It's just some random bag he just has a little white like paper bag yeah. full of crap yeah, yeah, yeah. tongues but yeah i think that makes a lot of sense too because it's almost like like he sent that out and the man like mm-hmm. or the the universe yeah. of magic it's like answering it's yeah. like answering yeah. him I yeah like, that's yes. neat I, yeah um so then after all of the crocodile tongues uh escape into the ground uh this old dead peach tree like i like we said in let me sum up um starts growing a peach um and what I'm wondering is that in the movie, we like see the peach growing and getting like bigger and bigger until it's giant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if that's the same in the book or if the book does more of a thing like, oh, they came they outside up, yeah. in the morning and there was a giant peach on the tree. Yes, uh, I could see why you would think they might. That might be a thing that they would just want to show that. But no, that is exactly what takes place in the book. They see it. They they see a, a peach up in the tree out of nowhere, and I think it's Spiker's like, oh, look, a peach. And then she goes, wait, it's growing. And they sit there and watch it grow, and the scene is identical. Uh, it grows. It, they just sit there and watch this impossibly large peach get impossibly larger uh, before eventually it bends the tree down and it is resting on the ground. It's exactly how it plays out in the book. That awesome. The movie did. Yeah. Does a tunnel appear in the peach for James to burrow into? 
Yes, uh, again, this scene is pretty much identical. I'm going to be saying that a lot. Uh, this movie is a very <laughs> close adaptation, barring some changes and some major changes eventually we'll get to. But uh, it is pretty much identical. Uh, I do really love the movie's choice to use this moment to transition to stop motion. I know we discussed in the prequel that this the, the decision to do live action open and close with the stop motion middle was at least partially a budget. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie, the, the the notes I was reading made it sound like it was pretty much entirely a budgetary decision. I find that hard to believe because it's such a well, it fits so well, like thematically with what's yeah. going on. It seems like such a, a clear style choice that it, maybe it was just a happy accident. Maybe it was initially a budget thing, but they're like, well, this is a really good way to do it. Um, either way, I think it works really well because uh, I think it really amps up the magic and wonder uh, of the once he crawls into the peach having yeah. that be where we transition into this much more magical, fantastical visual style makes a lot of sense. Um, I also really like the little detail of in the live action scenes setting the having it be on what is very clearly a set. Mm-hmm. Like it, 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 the scenes of the flashbacks with his parents, it's not flashbacks, but the scenes with his parents at the beginning and then all the stuff with the, around the house and everything. It is so clearly on a soundstage yeah. And the movie is not trying to disguise that fact at all. I think also really works because it it is such a wild storybook tale that that it even in live action it needs that level of like artifice, I think. Um because even in the even in quote unquote the real world before anything magical happens, we still have the these incredibly wicked, obvious, like fairy tale ants, and we have his parents getting eaten by a rhino. It's all very ridiculous from moment one. Mm-hmm. Um, it isn't just once he goes into the peach, all of a sudden it becomes really magical. Uh, but I do like that as a demarcation stylistically. But I, I think, regardless, it makes a lot of sense, or not regardless, I think on top of that, it makes a lot of sense to have the live action stuff very clearly on a sound stage because it just. Again, it, it reflects the, the the heightened reality of this world even before he crawls into the beach. Yeah, for sure. I was thinking about while we were watching it, um, how you mentioned in the prequel that uh, the studio wanted like live action because it was cheaper. Yes. And Henry Selleck, the director, really mm-hmm. wanted to do stop motion mm-hmm. um, because he's Henry Selleck. Yeah. And I, Was this his first stop motion? I didn't look that up. This might have been his first. This might have been where he started. No, no, he no, had done. Was, he had done. Uh, what am I talking about? Uh, yeah, Nightmare, Nightmare I was going to say Christmas Nightmare Before Christmas, Christmas came yes, out sorry, before this. Yes. Um, but I was thinking about it, and I think that stop motion was absolutely the right choice for this story. Um, I think it nails the whimsy, mm-hmm. and I think that a live, like a totally live action version of this would not have aged nearly no. as well. Oh, no. Yeah. With all the insects yes. and stuff? Yeah. Because we been... talked about um, how it was kind of poorly received initially, but I think that a lot of people around our age and, like, people who saw it growing up have super fond memories yeah. of this movie. And I think that if it had been totally live action, that the memories of it would be more like, oh, remember that one really creepy movie? Yeah. And I think people still find it creepy, like if you watched it as a kid, I which is funny because I didn't really I watched this really young and it didn't creep me out. And I was like afraid of spiders and stuff mm-hmm. like as a kid. I wasn't uh, but I didn't I don't know. This movie didn't creep me out in the same way that some other like similar types of movies m- might have when I was younger. Um, but yeah, I, I do think that, yeah, stop motion definitely 
makes this less makes it more digestible mm-hmm. when you get into a, a world full of giant insects. It, it yes, it adds a, a layer of whimsy <laughs> that makes it age really well. Whereas I don't know what it would have looked like were this all live action. I'm no thinking idea. of like there was a specific like made for TV version i think in the early 90s uh, like a made for tv movie of alice in wonderland and i don't expect you to know what i'm talking about off the top of my head but everything it was all like costumes and Mm. it was and like in retrospect it's very creepy looking yeah and has not aged particularly well and i think this avoided that fate by having the more uh whimsical storyline be stop motion yeah yeah um, okay, so now my most important question, the question that I really want the answer to, is Miss Spider goth? She is not, unfortunately, or at least not described as such. Um, I really like, so this is a thing the movie does overall that I really like, which is that it makes a decision to amp up and really characterize the insects. The characters, or the insects are not without character in the book, but it's just not nearly as fleshed out as Mm -hmm. it is in the film like in the book centipede i would argue probably has the most character uh he's a rascal he's a he's a jokester he's a prankster he's a he's a kind of a jerk and the other ones do to varying degrees like worm is is kind of catastrophizes a lot and that's kind of mentioned in the movie um ladybug is very like nice and kind of gentle but they all have like layers but the movie really fleshes that out in a way that i found satisfying and then also, I just really love the design of the insect characters in the film. I they're not described or drawn as mu- with as much detail in the book, and they're they're neat in their own ways in the book. But I really like giving them more clothes and like more distinct like visual styles yeah. and designs in the film, in particular like Miss Spider uh, and and all of them really. But I like like I like making this Miss Centipede dude like with that little hat and the cigar and like yeah. being like a new yorker or whatever i i like those little details that again are not not some of it's there to some extent in the book but just not nearly to the level that it is in the film uh my other note here when miss spider showed up i was like oh no they made the spider sexy <laughs> oh no uh, seeing why a lot of people from my generation have weird things about spider ladies now not me i don't like spiders i'm just saying i know they're out there <laughs> Oh, so you mentioned the earthworm. Uh, there's a particular line that he has that I wanted to know if it was from the book. Um, he's talking about how one of the ants went after his brother with a with a shovel. And mm. he says, split him right down the middle. Now I have two half brothers. Great line. Not from the book. Loved it, though. It's a better <laughs> in the movie moment for sure. Another thing I was very curious about upon rewatch of this film as an adult uh, because I I couldn't I can't remember the last time I watched this either. I'm sure I was a child. It is one of those that was really wild to me because I watched it so much as a kid. Yeah. But then I I think I turned like 13 and did not watch it ever again yeah. <laughs> until now. Like I think <laughs> it's just not I'm not really out of any purpose. I just never just for whatever reason it just falls off and the it radar. Also, it's also I feel like it wasn't a movie that was really like on TV much because that would have been the other way I would have seen it. Right. You yeah, know, if it had been playing middle school and high school, I had cable and stuff. So there's tons of movies that I've seen again, you know, in, even if not in its entirety, seen, you know, quite a bit of it just from like flipping through channels or whatever. 
And I just feel like this movie was not one, or maybe it just wasn't on channels that I was looking at much. Maybe it was playing on, Di- but I watched Disney quite a bit. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just, I'm not sure why it wouldn't, why I wouldn't have seen it. But yeah, I didn't hmm. until again for the um, last 20 years. <laughs> so anyway, my question here, um, after viewing this as an adult, is there obvious sexual tension between Miss Spider and Mr. Centipede? <laughs> No, uh, there is not. Again, this guy kind of goes back to my last note about just fleshing out the characters and adding more to their personalities than is there in the book, uh, which, again, it's not nothing, but it's just more in the movie. Uh, I re- I liked it. I thought it made a lot of sense. I like uh, they're both arachnids, I think. No, centipedes aren't arachnids, right? Uh, no, they're both. There's some carnivorous. Yeah, there's some. They're related in some way too. more than other bugs, I think. Maybe are, I could arthropods? be wrong. Yeah, but or, I think. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're arthropods, and there's some level they're closer related to than the some of yeah. the other insects. I think I could be. I'm not a. I'm not an. Uh, whatever the bug word is, the bug scientist word is. <laughs> I wanted to say ophthalmologist. That's not it. That's eyes, right? <laughs> I think uh, entomologist. Entomologist. That's. I think you're correct. Anyways, I'm not an entomologist or whatever the word is. Um, but I think they're somehow close, more closely related, like species wise, than other other the other insects in this movie although mm-hmm. i could be very wrong about that anyways point being i thought it was fun it's it's very minimal in the movie but yeah, it is, it's but it is not... there's a handful of scenes where it's very clear that they're they're implying some sort yeah. of yeah kind the, of... the creators of the movie shipped it yes and i thought that was fun uh but yes it does not come from the book um so there's a whole plot point in the movie where they um catch seagulls so that they can um get the peach up out of the water and airborne and use that to fly to New York. Um, and when they are catching these seagulls, they use Mr. Earthworm as bait. Do they do that in the book? Yes. And this scene is identical, essentially. It's exactly what I imagined. I mean, literally also the anim- the illustration of it is like identical to what <laughs> plays out in like the, what the scene we see in the film where they are, um, using him as bait like there's i swear there was an illustration oh maybe not i guess not but yes that that's they they hold him out of the hole they have the two people down there to pull him down mm-hmm. so that james can pop up with the the thread uh and 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 you know lasso the seagulls the only real change in this moment which i really loved is that after the first one they need they that's when the shark shows up the sharks have already shown up at this point in the book and they're they're actively there's they're real we'll get to this in a second they're real sharks in the book um and there's a bunch of them and they're actively they think eating the peach and mm-hmm. so they're worried they're gonna sink and so that's why they decide we need to capture these that's why james comes up with the plan to capture the birds to fly away movie just kind of rearranges the order slightly uh to good ex- good execution i think but um I love the moment in the book is that once the shark shows up or in the film, once the shark shows up and they're like, Oh my God, we got to get these birds quicker. Centipede just grabs worm and it's like whipping them around <laughs> in a circle it was very funny to me. Uh, does not happen in the book. I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, and then they use like a net to capture all the seagulls at once. Whereas mm-hmm. in the book, it's just described. They just, repeat the process one by one 502 times it takes well it's not all described obviously but that is it takes them 502 seagulls to get airborne it's specifically mentioned in the in the book so 
All right. Well, you mentioned the shark, so I'll go ahead and ask. Do they get attacked by a giant mechanical shark? They do not, as I just mentioned. But I think I like this. I, I was unsure, but I think I do. In the book, like I said, it's just a school of sharks, like normal sharks. Uh, the thing I really like about the mechanical shark in the movie is the little detail where it eats a bunch of fish and then spits out the fish heads on plates. Yeah. yeah that yeah, is yeah. a callback to the meal that the ants, the quote unquote meal, the ants prepared for James earlier in the film. Uh, I also just like the action scene surrounding this in the film or in the book. It's like I said, the sharks show up, they start seemingly eating the peach. They're like, we got to get out of here. We got to do something. And James is like, let's capture all the birds and fly away. In the movie, uh, we get kind of like an action sequence around that where the thing is like shooting harpoons at them and mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I thought that was cool. I think it fits stylistically in with the rest of the movie. Uh, you can ask like, well, what is this giant mechanical shark? Who cares? It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah. But like, and that's, you know, like I said, that's a fair question, but it also doesn't matter. And I, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was fun. Uh, everybody kind of gets something to do in the action scene, which was cool. And uh, I, I also loved the design of the mechanical shark. I thought it was super cool. And every time it, they showed it from the front, it, it, it looks like Shai Halud. It looks like a sandworm from Dune. <laughs> it looks exactly like the sandworm from Dune. <laughs> it's cracking me up. Do they all eat the peach mm -hmm. while they're flying around on it? Yep. And this is uh, this scene takes place very much identically. They're all starving. And then yeah. James is like, you know, you guys know we're on a giant thing made of food. And they're like, you're a genius. <laughs> and it's like, is he? <laughs> but yeah, they they're uh, they're all starving. And then James is like, we can just eat the peach we're on because there's way too much of it. Mm -hmm. Like because then one of them was like, well, but that's our ship. And we'll we'll eat it and we'll sink. And he's like, there's way more than we need. <laughs> like we, yeah. we can eat it and be fine. Yeah. Uh, but yes, that is exactly exactly what happens another moment um when they all start eating the peach in the movie they're talking about how good it is mm -hmm. uh, and miss spider says it's better than ladybugs and miss ladybug goes what yes this is not in the book uh it made me laugh but yeah not in the book <laughs> um does james have a nightmare where he's a caterpillar trying to escape from spiker and sponge he does not i like this scene a lot uh, it reminded me the style of it is like it's kind of like a Monty Python. Yeah, it kind of looks like a, a like a pastiche like uh, collage kind yeah, of. Yeah, it's thing. the thing where it's like paper cutouts. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I thought it was super cool. Um, there's a, some other art style or some other thing that does that style, and I can't place what it is. But Monty Python does it a lot um, in a lot of their older movies and stuff. Like specifically Holy Grail, like the, yeah, the trumpets, yeah, yeah, the gods, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But anyways, I know I thought this is really cool. None of this comes from the book. Uh, for reasons that we'll discuss here shortly. Um, but I, I did like it in the movie as a fun little interlude that reminds us of the the ants, the ants, the evil ants. Mm -hmm. Did you also notice that um, in that sequence, Ant Sponge is made of sponges? No, that is good. Though. That's a good little detail. <laughs> uh, so move forward a little bit. Um, and a Centipede gets them lost, essentially, in the movie. And then he's going to dive down into all these shipwrecks um, to try to get a compass. Mm -hmm. um, so he he dives off of the peach into the water and a grasshopper says, good heavens, he's committed pesticide. It's a great line, not in the <laughs> book. Unarguably hilarious line. <laughs> I laughed. It's in the trailer for a reason. Yeah. Uh, but no, it is not from the book. Does Mr. Centipede then get captured and tortured by underwater ghost pirates? 
No. So none of this happens. This whole scene with all the pirates and everything, none of this happens. This is an expansion of a scene and kind of a, a reimagining of a later scene from the or section of the book, kind of. There is a moment in the book where Centipede falls off the peach mm-hmm. and James dives after him with some uh, silk or whatever, spider silk tied around him. But that's it. And he just kind of saves him and brings him back up. We don't even see what ha- he just like falls into the water and James like dives in and gets him basically. But there's nothing else really going on there. And then later they encounter some cloud men, which we will discuss, which is not in the movie at all. Mm-hmm. But I think basically what the movie did is kind of combine those two sequences and just change the cloud men to the pirates. So I really like this whole sequence in the movie. I love I love the little detail that Centipede gets them lost because he like says he knows where he's going. He's all bluster mm-hmm. in the book he's also a jerk and kind of like a blowhard and nobody really likes him but he just kind of stays that he just kind of stays a jerk in the book like he doesn't seem to really change at all i really like in this that he has to like redeem himself he gets them lost and then they don't ever get lost in the book because they don't really know where they're going <laughs> they're just fair kind enough of, they're just kind <laughs> of traveling like again and they don't have like an end goal necessarily in the book uh they're just kind of you know take going where the winds take them and it just happens to take them to New York. But I, so I love that he gets them lost and he has to redeem himself. Um, and I like this whole sequence where he has to find the compass and they fight the skeletons in this wreck. And then one of them is Jack Skellington. It's, it's a lot of fun. I think it's super cool. It does replace a different action set piece that I like a lot in the book, but it's kind of like six of one, half a dozen of the other. Like, I don't know which I would have liked to see the Cloudman sequence that we'll talk about portrayed in the film. But I also really like the sequence we do get with the pirates skeletons in the film. So like, yeah, I, I'm not mad about it. Mm-hmm. Like if the sequence they replaced the Cloudman with was like boring or dumb or bad, I would be like, Oh, that sucks. But it's not, it's fun. So I was fine with it. But <laughs> I'm sure there are some people that are annoyed. We don't get the Cloudman. Does Mr. Grasshopper play the violin and does he throw shade at crickets? He does. And I don't know how I feel about this. I'm kind of indifferent, I think, because in the movie, he's playing a real violin, like an actual violin. Yeah. And, and he mocks crickets because he says they just like rub their legs together or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think this makes sense for the Grasshopper character in the movie who is a heightened version of the grasshopper in the book. And he's like this very sophisticated man of culture. He likes violin. He likes the finer things. He wants to go experience museums and concerts and stuff. And there's a little bit of that in the book with his character. He is like a more sophisticated bug Uh, again. He, but so the difference is in the book, he does not have a violin. He does play with his wing and his leg. Mm. He plays it like a violin. James says that to him specifically. He goes, wow, it's like a real violin. And he's very happy. Like, he likes that. Like, he likes the idea of playing a real violin. And he's, like, very um, complimented by James that he compares it to playing a real violin. And he does kind of trash talk longhorned grasshoppers. So he's a shorthorned grasshopper, he says. And they use their wing and their leg and play in a way that is similar to a violin, according to him. 
but long-horned grasshoppers don't they play with just rubbing their wings together or something and he kind of implies that it's like a less sophisticated way of playing Mm -hmm. um it's not crickets but yeah and so there's some similar ideas here and the movie just kind of tweaks it all around i'm not sold either way i i don't i think i like the movie making it an actual violin it does it feels like it fits his character really well um and it and it's not it's not wholly divorced from like the spirit of the scene. I, I don't feel like it changes the spirit of the scene from what the scene is doing in the book with his character and stuff like that. Um, but it is manifestly different in the sense that he does actually have a violin, which he does not in the book. So I don't know. You, you, I could see maybe making an argument either way. I don't really care either way. I think it's fine <laughs> that he just has an actual violin. Um, So we're kind of coming up on the climax of everything now. And um, we get uh, the the scary sequence in this movie um, where there's like there's a storm and we see uh, the rhino coming out of the storm, coming back for James. Um, And I, I was wondering if this came from the book because I kind of adore the implication that this demonic rhinoceros has some sort of blood feud with James's family. And came back to finish the job and the line. So, no, this does not happen in the book. Uh, there is. I think I like this. There is no final confrontation with the the. With the rhinoceros, I'm I'm mixed on this. Because I, I, I like it. I think it makes sense to have this kind of resolution of the of him standing up to this rhinoceros. But that being said, I don't know if this is the movie slash book's strongest, the strongest thematic point. Mm. In the movie, it seems like it's presenting this as kind of like a face your fears thing. Like he stands up to the rhinoceros and he's like, I'm not scared of you. He's yeah. like, yeah. And that like kind of seemingly defeats the rhinoceros. But and that's not really a point in the book much overall, the like kind of face your fears idea is not really something the book is saying. And also I I would argue that in the movie, it's kind of a horrible fear to face if it's real, which is what I get. Like if it, if his parents were actually murdered by a rhinoceros, him like standing up to it is not going to do anything because he's a little kid. Like, yeah. So it almost makes it feel like that that must be the implication then in the movie. And maybe I'm just dumb that, and everybody's like, yeah, duh, obviously this is the implication that, that his parents weren't in fact killed by a rhinoceros in the movie and that it is the, an invention by the ants maybe or something or t- to like scare him and keep him in line. Cause that is a thing they do in the movie quite a bit that does not happen in the book where the ants are like that rhinoceros is still out there. Yeah. And that does not really happen in the book. I don't think it might happen like once, but it's not a recurring thing. And so maybe that is what the movie is going for is this implication that either one, the rhinoceros, his parents weren't killed by a rhinoceros and, and it was all kind of a made up story and it's him like kind of facing down that fear or maybe his, or the other option I guess is maybe his parents were, were in fact killed by a rhinoceros, but he has to learn that his aunt's holding that over to him is not that he should conquer that fear because it's not a a thing that would really happen. I don't know. It feels a little weak and messy to me compared Mm -hmm. to like some of the other messages in the film and the book. 
So I'm not really sure because the overall themes in the book and the rest of the movie is really about being kind, daring to dream, accepting people that look different and kind of not judging books by their cover. That's kind of the overall points, like a lot of the messages you're supposed to be getting from this book and this movie. And so the rhino confrontation just ends up being a thing that I'm just kind of like, I don't again, I, I know what it's doing in that moment, but it makes me question like the rest of that plot line with the rhino like was it ever yeah. a real rhino just you know i, think I don't you know you could definitely read it multiple ways at yeah. least in the movie because you said the book was a little more like straightforward well the rhino never comes it. back yeah and it book. never comes it, back yeah. um and I, you know i made a a joke about like the rhino having a blood feud with james's family but i i don't think and I've never really interpreted the rhino coming out of the clouds at the end as the rhinoceros that killed his parents literally coming back. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I I was, you know, thinking more reading it as like, yeah, him like facing down that fear. But I agree with you that it doesn't seem to be a thematic strong point. Well, and, and it's a weird fear for him to face down i guess like obviously yes yeah. the let's let's go operate on the idea that yes his parents were in fact killed by a rhinoceros or whatever that escaped from the zoo and let's assume also that james is scared of this rhinoceros and that at the end he he is he is confronting that fear of the rhinoceros as opposed to the actual rhinoceros obviously like the thing right. coming out of the out of the, the 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 storm is not the actual rhinoceros that killed his parents. It's like a manifestation of his fear of that rhinoceros. Yes. I still don't know what I'm supposed to be getting out of that because again, it's a very reasonable thing to be scared of. And if if in fact his parents were killed by a rhinoceros, I I don't think that there it's a valuable message to be like you should you should stand up to that fear. I don't know because like his parents were killed by a rhinoceros. Yes, that's not a common thing. It's not going to happen, but it's an insane thing already. I think that's what makes it so complicated is it because it's such an inherently crazy thing to be killed by. Mm -hmm. The fact that James is like maybe weirded out by that idea or scared of it doesn't seem like something. Okay, this is hard to describe, but like, let's say his parents were killed in a car accident and the at, at at the end there's some thematic through line where at the end he has to conquer his fear of like riding in a car uh -huh. that i think is a reasonable like journey for his character to go on because obviously car accidents happen all the time people die in car accidents all the time and it's very reasonable that a kid would be scared of riding in a car if their parents died in a car and that would be something that would be good for him to overcome eventually because in general you're pretty safe riding in it well you whatever i it's complicated but you get what i'm saying like like that is a thing right. to operate in the real world. You need to do is you need to be able to get over the fear of getting in a car because that's something you're going to need to do at different points in your life moving forward. I don't understand how this translates to the literal idea of his parents getting killed by a rhino necessarily. And maybe I'm being too literal with it, but that that I think is is because because his parents were actually killed by a rhino, the idea of standing up to the manifestation of that fear of the rhino feels weird and silly to me because if he sees a rhino in real life, what he should do is run away. That's true. So like, or whatever you're supposed to do when you, if a rhino were to like, again, it's such yeah. a crazy thing that it doesn't really feel that applicable, but, uh -huh. and that's where I kind of have trouble with what the movie's doing there. Uh, well, I, okay, well, here's, here's my take on it. Um, I think 
that you could connect him standing up to the rhino, i.e. the manifestation of his fear um, of what happened to his parents and tie that to him being able to then stand up to his aunts later on. Now, I also don't think that the movie did a particularly strong job of like tying all of that together, but I think you could read those as connected. I agree they are connected. I agree. Yeah. And and that is, I definitely agree that's connected. And, and that's like the first stage. And then he does actually stand up to his aunts at the end, um, which again is completely different from the book, which we'll get into. But I agree. I think the thing that just makes it, that muddies it for me is it's because of the fantastical nature of the universe this exists in. It seems like he's standing up like the, the literal and reading of what we're seeing is him standing up to this murderous rhinoceros, which within the universe is a real thing. Again, it's not that. I don't know. It just makes it complicated and weird to me in a way that I, thought didn't work perfectly but maybe i'm yeah. overthinking it it's possible i'm overthinking it i don't know i mean it definitely doesn't work perfectly yeah. Yeah. but but i again i i also kind of liked it i thought it was a fun scene and again it does tie enough through with him standing up to his aunts and stuff later that i think overall mm-hmm. i don't mind it that addition i think it does work it's just i think it's a little clunkier maybe than than i w- would have hoped it would have been <laughs> i guess I don't know. Does James end up separated from uh, from everyone else, from all his insect friends, um, before the peach falls onto the Empire State Building? Uh, no. In the book, they all just fall onto the Empire State Building. Uh, they're they're all on the peach still, and a plane flies through, and the plane that a plane that is it's like landing at JFK or whatever. Mm-hmm. I guess it probably wasn't JFK then, because it was well well before whatever the airport in <laughs> New York was called. Uh, Prior to, and I'm sure there are multiple, but either way, a plane is landing and it's like a normal, like weekly flight. It's described in the book. Like it's like the flight that always comes through this time of day on this day or whatever. And it, and it, it, the wing cuts through all of the lines with the seagulls and they just Uh, fall. Okay. Onto, they're already descending. Like they're slowly releasing seagulls to descend slowly, but then a plane comes through and they just fall. Uh, and they land on top of the thing, but they're all there. And then uh, James just has to immediately introduce all of these bugs to the like the fire firemen and stuff and cops show up on top of the building. Like, what the hell is going on? And he's like, oh, I'm a person. And they see all the bugs and stuff first. And they're all like freaking out, which I'll have more on this later. But and then James pops up and it's like, hey, and they're like, there's a kid. And he's like, yeah, these are my friends. And he basically just introduces the bugs to everybody. I did like this change in the movie of having them initially separate Mm -hmm. and then show up. More on that in a second. Another line that I really loved in the movie, uh, when a fireman goes up to get James um, off of the peach. And and we, the viewer, know that he's on top of the Empire State Building, but James doesn't know that. And he's like looking around for it. Yeah. Um, And he the fireman gets up there. And and James is like, but where's the Empire State Building? And the fireman says, you're on top of it, kid. Yes. <laughs> in a great New York accent. Yeah, this is not in the book. I did like this uh, a lot of that change of him being like, wait, where's the Empire State Building? Because he's aware that he fell on it in the in the book because he doesn't he doesn't in the movie. He kind of like seemingly kind of like gets knocked out for a second or something mm-hmm. and like comes to. 
Um, but I love the little detail, and this is a better in the movie detail for me, that as he's coming to inside the peach, there's this red flashing, and you don't really know yeah. what it is at first, because the movie does not show you, does not reveal that he's on the Empire State Building initially. It does it slowly, and we put it together pretty quickly. Um, but I love the little detail of the flashing light when he wakes up in the peach, and you're like, what is that light? And then I was like, it's the light on top of the spire on top mm-hmm. of the empire state building that's clever i like that <laughs> so yeah uh that does not play out like that he does get, it does get impaled on the empire state building but he's aware that that's where they okay are. uh do sponge and spiker show up at the end and is it implied that they drove across the atlantic ocean <laughs> they do not and i thought that was hilarious i wrote that down when they open the doors and they're like water yeah water out, and there's like fish and all like over seaweed and stuff i lo- i was like that is an <laughs> incredible i love that implication that they just like drove across the atlantic ocean somehow so this is a huge change arguably the biggest change in the book both ants are crushed and killed by the peach at the very beginning mm. <laughs> when it rolls away it rolls over them which it does in the movie but they're in the car and yeah. they survive in the book, it, they're just they're out. They're not in a vehicle or anything. It rolls over them, and they both are just squished to death by the peach, and are out of the book for the rest of it. That that is very rolled doll. Yes, I I'm sure this is controversial. I'm sure some people like that more. I kind of quite like this change in the movie. Uh, I like having them be this looming concern for James throughout the film. Mm-hmm. In the book, once he's on, once he's out of there, they're just like. He's like, well, we'll see where we end up. But there's not really like an impending or potential threat, really, other than the things they run into along the course of this journey. Right. But there's no looming threat. And I like having them be this looming concern by James and then having them be the ultimate test of his bravery at the end where he has to confront them. And he ends up winning this confrontation, quote unquote, winning this confrontation with them because of the friends he has made along the way. He tells this incredible tale of all the things that's happened. Um, but he is backed up by the bugs floating down and revealing that he was telling the truth that, and he has these great friends. And I like that a lot. I think it's a very satisfying conclusion to the journey, uh, giving him kind of, again, this final confrontation. He also gets to give this nice little speech about dreams and how everything starts as a dream and how New York city started as a dream. And it's a, this calls back to a scene where the spider earlier in the film has a little thing with him and kind of like talks it to him about like standing up for himself and stuff like that. When he's like falling asleep in her web and they're kind of like mm-hmm. chit chatting, she tells, talks to him about like standing up for himself and that sort of stuff. And so I like bringing that all full circle, having him stand up to the ants at the end. Again, there's something very quirky and fun about them just being immediately squashed, like, yeah. And they're just being out of the story, but narratively for a film, I really like bringing them back at the big climax and giving us this final confrontation and having them bested by James Mm -hmm. kind of, I think it's fun in a, in a different way. So I like that change. Um, So then that kind of nullifies my next question, (laughs) (laughs) but in the movie, uh, when he stands up to them, they just straight up go after him with like axes from off the fireman truck. Yeah. Um, So that does not happen in the book. (laughs) No. Yeah. None of that, none of that scene at the end there is, is from the book at all. Um, and my my other last like random line that made me laugh in this movie uh, when he's introducing his his insect friends to everyone, Miss Glowworm yells, "God bless the colonies." <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> this is not in the book. Made me laugh a lot. I enjoyed it. But yeah, not in the book. Um, and then last question. Does James live out his days in a peach pit house? Yes. This ending is identical. They put the peach pit in Central Park uh, and he lives in it with a little plaque outside that says James Henry Trotter or whatever his name is. Uh, and uh, he gets to live in the peach pit house and the insects come and visit him every now and then and kids come and he has all the friends he could ever want. That's his happy ending is he he gets all the friends he never could have when he was living with the evil ants. So, yeah, that is exactly the same ending. All right. Those were all of Katie's questions for was that in the book? She has a couple more in Lost and Adaptation. Just show me the way to get out of here and I'll be on my way. Was it lost? Yes. Yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. Um, so I was really curious because the movie doesn't specify. So I was wondering if the book tells us if Sponge and Spiker are his mother's sisters or his father's sisters. It doesn't really matter, but I was just curious. It does not, at least not that I could find. The first time they're introduced, it says he 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 goes to live with just his two aunts mm -hmm. doesn't say what side. And then I looked for a couple more different places where I thought it might mention, and I did not see anything. So I don't think it ever is mentioned. Okay. If somebody else knows, feel free to correct me, but I, I could, I didn't find it anywhere that it's mentioned who they are. They're just his two aunts. All right. My last question here, uh, the magic man, when he gives James the bag of crocodile tongues, does he tell them what he's meant to do with them? to make his dreams come true because he doesn't give him any kind of instructions in the movie. Um, he's just like, here, have these crocodile tongues. They'll make your wildest dreams come true. They're very powerful magic. And I was kind of sitting there like, is he supposed to eat them? Like, what does he do with them? It's funny. Cause as I was taking notes during that scene, that scene ended and I turned to you and I was like, wait, did he tell him what to do with them? And you were like, I don't think so. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Cause that was a, a note. I was like, uh, I was writing things down as, as different things that were happening. And then I was like trying to pay attention to everything he was saying. I was like, I don't think he ever said what to do with them, which is a weird cause. Yeah. Cause yes, in the book, he very explicitly explains what to do with them. Uh, I have, I have it here. It's literally, it's a very short little. Well, it's not page four. It's like chapter four. And now the old man said, all you've got to do is this. Take a large jug of water and pour all the little green things into it. Then very slowly, one by one, add 10 hairs from your head. That sets them off. It gets them going. In a couple of minutes, the water will begin to froth and bubble furiously. And as soon as that happens, you must quickly drink it all down, the whole jug full in one gulp. And then, my dear, you will feel it churning and boiling in your stomach and steam will start coming out of your mouth. And immediately after that, marvelous things will start to happen to you. Fabulous, unbelievable things. And you will never be miserable again in your life. So, yeah, he has to drink it. He has to make like a, a the world's worst Kool-Aid out of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, because I thought the same thing in the movie. I was like, well, what is he going to do with them? Yeah. He doesn't tell them what to do with them. And then and then he ends up eating one later, which I'll talk about. Right. Like when he's eating that piece of the peach. Uh, but yeah, it's never told what you're supposed to be. Yeah, he's supposed to drink them in the book. So there you go. All right. I've got quite a few things to talk about that I thought were better in the book. You like to read? Oh, yes. I love to read. What do you like to read? everything uh this is like a broad thing but I, it's been a while if i'm sure i've read Roald Dahl stuff i just can't remember 
<laughs> the last rolled doll thing I read. Uh, I'm sure I read some when I was younger, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, but uh, one of the things that really struck me, especially early in the book, is the very simple but evocative writing style that he has that um, especially establishing how miserable James Lott in life is. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if I can find a great example of this, but it was just something that stuck out to me how quickly and sort of economically he does a very good job uh, establishing how how miserable maybe this is maybe this is a good section to kind of about how miserable James's life is maybe this paragraph is a good section to kind of get across what I'm saying I don't know if this is where I wrote this note I don't remember where I was when I wrote this note I think it would have been before page five so this is probably maybe the section I was thinking of their names were Aunt Sponge and Aunt Spiker, and I'm sorry to say that they were both really horrible people. They were selfish and lazy and cruel, and right from the beginning, they started beating poor James for almost no reason at all. They never called him by his real name, but always referred to him as you disgusting little beast, or you filthy nuisance, or you miserable creature, and they certainly never gave him any toys to play with or any picture books to look at. His room was as bare as a prison cell. The garden which covered the whole of the top of the hill was large and desolate. The only tree in the entire place, apart from a clump of dirty old laurel bushes at the far end, was an ancient peach tree that never gave any peaches. There was no swing, no seesaw, no sand pit, and no other children were ever invited to come up the hill to play with poor James. There wasn't so much as a dog or a cat around to keep him company, and as time went on, he became sadder and sadder and more and more lonely, and he used to spend hours every day standing at the bottom of the garden, gazing wistfully at the lovely but forbidden world of woods and fields and ocean that was spread out below him like a magic carpet. Again, so just in a matter of like a couple of paragraphs, really drives home yeah. <laughs> how much James's yeah. life sucks, which I thought was really effective. Uh, another little note that I liked is uh, this is a, uh, just a little writing thing that I always kind of these kind of little things stick with me in my head because I, I write for a living. So little tricks like this, I always find interesting. Um, and there's just a little, uh, I don't even know. Again, just a style thing that, that doll does in, in this paragraph that I thought was really interesting. After James Henry Trotter had been living with his aunts for three whole years, there came a morning when something rather peculiar happened to him. And this thing, which as I say, was only rather peculiar soon caused a second thing to happen, which was very peculiar. And then the very peculiar thing, in its own turn, caused a f really fantastically peculiar thing to occur. I just like the elevating... That's actually, like, that's a really peculiar. good pull quote of, like, Dahl's style. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was... It reminded me a lot of other authors that I enjoy. Adams, mm -hmm. you know, all those British fuckers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just, I like... Yeah, it's a style of writing that I like and find very whimsical and fun. Um, and that was just like a very succinct kind of example of it. Which the movie, you know, steals elements of that here and there. But that was just one specific example from the book. There's a little detail I like in the book that when James gets into the peach, he meets everybody and Centipede uh, needs help getting all of his shoes off. <laughs> and so he has James... <laughs> take help him take all of his shoes off and he has he says he has hundreds of them but everybody else is like he only has 42 he just lies and says he has hundreds <laughs> of feet uh but he has 42 pairs of of boots on uh, and that's the other thing in the in the book it's implied that i think he walks like an actual, like centipede, an actual centipede whereas in the movie he's up on his or well maybe he does because on the cover of this book he is up mm -hmm. but he does still have boots on all of his feet <laughs> 
whereas in the movie he 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 walks kind of like upright and like yeah, his lower and like half his feet and his some feet, of them and are some hands. of them are like hands yeah whereas in the in the book it's implied they're all feet basically um but he has to put all these he he has to it says it takes him like two hours to get all these boots off because they're all like tied really tight and stuff and he has to mm-hmm. undo all the knots and everything and then as soon as he gets them off uh at some point late like right after that they then need to go outside for some reason and he has to put all his boots back on but this time everybody helps him puts all the boots on so it goes a lot faster <laughs> but it's just a little detail that i thought was very funny i thought it could have been a fun gag to have show him like sitting there untying all the boots for centipede we have already addressed this and i like the change overall but i did as i mentioned just like the ants getting immediately squashed in the book it's fun because they deserve it they're awful mm. terrible monstrous people uh, there's also this little detail in the book that I thought was fun that later on the the insects like revel in remembering the sound of ant sponge being crushed <laughs> by the peach. Uh, it does fall in line with the weird meanness of even like the good characters in doll books. He's a he's a weird guy and he's, he's a lot of like. Yeah, meanness in his books, even like, yeah, even from like the good characters. But yeah, they're like they like really they really enjoy remembering the sound and feeling of the ants being crushed by a giant peach in a way that's a little uncomfortable, but funny. Uh, there's also uh, the peach causes a lot more chaos before it ends up in the ocean. In the, in the movie, we get a pretty good thing of it, like rolling through town and like doing, you know, knocking over fences and blah, blah, blah. But there's a lot more in the book. Uh, it, it rolls through like several towns and all this sort of stuff. And one of the main details that I loved in the book that I didn't know, had no idea, that I thought was a very fun little kind of Easter egg was that it specifically it mentions that the peach rolls through the walls of a factory mm-hmm. in one side and out the other of a very famous chocolate factory. Uh-huh. And after it bowls through the walls, all this chocolate comes pouring out into mm-hmm. the streets and like floods the town and all the kids are just like <laughs> drinking the chocolate as they're like swimming through it. I thought that was a fun, uh, yeah. literal Easter egg. Yeah. And there's actually quite a few like references to other, I have another one later, but there's like several references to other doll mm-hmm. stuff in this that I, I, the role doll. Yeah. Expanded I didn't universe. know that he did like <laughs> other like in universe references in his books, which I thought was clever or interesting for sure. Cause I was like, Oh my God, that's literally just a, yeah, it, it rolled through Willy Wonka's yeah. factory. That's okay. <laughs> Fun. Uh, we see spider weave a little web for James to sleep in, but in the book, I really like that. It's described that she weaves everybody like hammocks, mm. but they end up looking like I imagine it ends up looking like when spiders capture food and like wrap it up for later. But yeah. the people, the, all of the other insects like willingly crawl into these hammocks that she weaves <laughs> for them. And there's just like this really creepy imagery to that, that I thought was really cool. Uh, and they don't in the movie, they're all just kind of sleeping in random places in that mm-hmm. scene. Whereas in the book, she makes specifically makes hammocks for everybody and they all crawl in. And I just like the idea of, again, there's like a fun juxtaposition of a spider wrapping up kind of these other insects but for a good reason for a nice reason and not for eating reasons uh as i mentioned in the book that it's a bunch of sharks that actually attack the peach and not a big robot shark uh and after they get away from them in the with the seagulls spider jumps over the edge and crawls down to go inspect the bottom and make sure see how much damage the sharks did and it's revealed that they basically did no damage at all and this is because and they discussed like the anatomy of shark mouths and how 
the nature of how sharks' noses are shaped and with where their mouths are, that because of the, how big and round the peach was, they literally can't, couldn't really bite it that much. So it looked like a lot of bad stuff was happening, but uh-huh. in reality, nothing really was happening. They it's were just kind, kind of, of rubbing, rubbing their noses against the... Uh, I think it's described in the book of like imagine like a small dog mm-hmm. like with a very large ball and how they can't really <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was funny. Again, I, I like the change with the mechanical shark, but that little detail I thought was just very fun and weird. Uh, also, as they're flying away, the Queen Mary sails underneath them and sees the peach flying through the eye and the cap or through the air. And the captain looks at it with his his little his little seeing glass or whatever. And is like, there's a a kid and a bunch of big bugs or whatever and the whole cr- and his crew thinks he's drunk they're like oh the captain's <laughs> been drinking again <laughs> gotta get him back into his bunk or whatever uh which I, again i just enjoyed that moment uh they all there's a conversation where all of the insects argue about where the normal place to have ears is <laughs> which was fun because bugs have ears in weird places they're describing they're talking about how like grasshoppers have ears on their somewhere they go through all these different bugs and how they have some of them have ears in their legs, some of them have ears in their neck, some of them, like mm-hmm. ears in all these weird places. And James is very like, what? You guys are weird. Your ears aren't on your head. And they're like, we think you're weird. Your ears on your head. <laughs> they look dumb. And they're like, it's weird and dumb to have ears on the side of your head. I just thought it was a fun conversation. Uh, Worm and Ladybug explain at one point how they help farmers, uh, which I thought was a fun little thing. Uh, and the spider also explains how she helps people, but that despite the fact that she eats mosquitoes and other bugs that people still hate her. Uh, and I thought that was fun. Um, the movie touches on this a little bit with spider. I feel like there's at yeah. least one scene where she mentions something like that. There's the, the scene where she's putting James to bed. She talks about how like it's, it's in their nature to be afraid of her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, but, and so the movie touches on a little bit, but the, again, it's a little bit longer and bigger of a scene in the, in the book, and I like how it, it it goes first from the worms and the ladybugs, which I think kids could have kind of naturally like not aren't as, you know, scared of or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and kind of expands it out to spiders. I thought that was like a nice actual like little learning moment for little kids of like, hey, look, like a teachable moment. Like, yeah. look, see, spiders are actually I know they're kind of creepy and weird, but they're they're good. They eat bugs. Blah. It's just like a it's like, hey, it's actually teaching kids something useful and good about <laughs> the natural world. Uh, so I mentioned it earlier, but this film completely cuts the Cloudman sequence and transforms it into the the spir- skeleton pirate sequence. I really like the Cloudman sequence in the book. They they're floating through the air and they get to some clouds and there's just these dudes that live on clouds mm-hmm. that make hailstones and snow and stuff. Hmm. And they're really like creepy looking, kind of described as creepy looking, and. There's also a moment that I thought was really funny where as they're floating through the um I think it's summer when they're well, this is all happening and somebody let me see if I can find the note here. Yeah, they're making something and it's hailstones, whispered James excitedly. They've been making hailstones and now they're showering them down onto the people in the world below. Hailstones, the centipede said. That's ridiculous. This is summertime. You don't have hailstones in summertime. And James says they are practicing for the winter. And I'm like, does does Britain not have hail in the summer? That's the only time it hails in the U.S. Yeah, right. I was just like legitimately here. unsure. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. What happens in the winter, you call either freezing rain, or I guess it could maybe hail, kind of, but you would call it freezing rain or ice mm-hmm. or sleet. 
I and mean, it never gets big. You don't get big hailstones in the winter because you need like the warm. You need yeah. You need the warm. Uh, you need storm summer storm clouds basically air. to create the hail. And and so I was like, I mean, I know the the climate in the UK is really different than it, it is, is different. Yes, here. that's why I was that's why I was legitimately asking. I just thought it was super weird that they're like you don't get hailstones in summer. I'm like, well, oh, don't yeah, you do here at least. And, <laughs> yeah, and I, again, they're do. in the northern. I know it's a different climate, but they're also in the northern hemisphere, so it shouldn't be super. Di- and they're, I know it's different. I'm just was like, what? UK listeners, UK sound listeners, off. chime in. What are you guys calling hail, and when does it happen? <laughs> is this an old thing? Like maybe this is like a this changed over the. I don't know because in the yeah. U.S., hail comes in the summer or spring or you know during storm season when we have big storms, especially in the Midwest and stuff. During early spring, uh, and you it, it, depending on the climate and stuff, it, it can even happen over winter, but it's rare. Um, but like mainly when storms start to kick up in spring, over summer, and into fall during storm season, that's when hail happens. Yeah, more associated need, with like tornado yes, season. Yes, it's, it's it's associated with thunderstorm season, tornado season, which is again through from like early spring through mid late summer. And again, it can happen other than that, but that's like the main time. And so I'm just interested to know what what you guys think hail is and I, so i can tell you you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> uh but then uh this whole sequence is a lot of fun centipede insults them uh, and they get mad and just start throwing hailstones at mm-hmm. the peach uh and they're all just getting like decimated by hailstones um from these cloudmen. eventually they drift away but then they start drifting towards a bunch of cloudmen climbing some big arch and they don't know what it is but then they realize that the cloudmen are painting it and it's a rainbow oh and then they they drift through the rainbow and like shatter it <laughs> and all the cloudmen are very mad at them again there's also a line in this that i just wanted to mention because i'm sure it's one of the lines that got changed in the in the uh thing we talked about in the prequel episode about how they adapted some stuff at one point as they're drifting towards all of these cloud men on the, and they know the cloud men are already mad at them. So they're like, Oh my God, we're going towards tons of them. Cause they're all climbing all over this rainbow. And I think grasshopper says, I'd rather be fried alive and eaten by a Mexican, which is just, you know, one of those lines that, yeah. yeah. And it's like, okay, you know, people in other cultures eat grasshoppers. It's not like, and it's not, there's nothing inherently like racist necessarily, but it, within context, it's definitely yeah. a little racially like weird, I guess is yeah. what I would say. But there's this one absolutely terrifying moment that I love the way it's described in the book. And I was really hoping we'd see this in the movie. I, it honestly might have been too scary um, where they crash through the rainbow and destroy it. The description of the cloudmen and what one of them does is so horrifying. The next thing that happened was extremely unfortunate. The ropes that the cloudmen had been using for lowering the rainbow got tangled all up with the silk strings that went up from the peach to the seagulls. The peach was trapped. Panic and pandemonium broke out among the travelers, and James Henry Trotter, glancing up quickly, saw the faces of a thousand furious cloudmen peering down at him over the edge of the cloud. The faces had almost no shape at all because of the long white hairs that covered them. There were no noses, no mouths, no ears, no chins, Only the eyes were visible in each face, two small black eyes glinting malevolently through the hairs. Then came the most frightening thing of all. One cloud man, a huge hairy creature who must have been 14 feet tall at least, suddenly stood up and made a tremendous leap off the side of the cloud, trying to get to one of the silk strings above the peach. James and his friends saw him go flying through the air above them, his arms outstretched in front of him, reaching for the nearest string, and they saw him grab it and cling to it with his hands and legs. And then, 
very, very slowly, hand over hand, he began to came to come down the string. <laughs> <laughs> Mercy, help us, cried the ladybug. He's coming down to eat us, wailed the old green grasshopper. I just love that idea of this giant, like, and then, like, <laughs> slowly sliding down the string toward him. Oh, it creeped me out. I loved it so much. Um, but they're able to get away, and as they're getting away, uh, they knock into a cloud or something, and a, a bucket of paint gets spilled on them all mm -hmm. over the place, and it covers Centipede, and it's just a great little detail because he starts, like, hardening yeah. in the paint, uh, and then miss, and they're trying to figure out what to do. They get away, but now Centipede is, like, hardening in covered in paint uh, and miss spider uh, uh recounts this story about her grandmother who got stuck in the paint on the ceiling of uh aunt sponge and, and aunt spiker's house like for six months and they kept feeding her yeah and then one day aunt sponge just sees her and kills her <laughs> it's like a horrifying sad story uh, but interesting um, and then I love so much Earthworm just has the most absolutely unhinged solution for what they're trying to figure out what to do about Centipede because they're yeah. like, well, how do we get the paint off them? And Earthworm does not like in the movie. Earthworm does not really like Centipede because Centipede is mean to him. And I love that <laughs> Earthworm recites just the most absolutely insane solution and everybody just looks at him like, maybe not. <laughs> It'll never come off, the earthworm said brightly. Our centipede will never move again. He will turn into a statue, and we shall be able to put him in the middle of the lawn with a birdbath on top of his head. We could try peeling him like a banana, the old green grasshopper suggested, or rubbing him with sandpaper, the ladybug said. Now, if he stuck out his tongue, the earthworm said, smiling a little for perhaps the first time in his life. If he stuck it out really far, then we could all catch hold of it and start pulling. And if we pulled hard enough, we could turn him inside out and he would have a new skin. There was a pause while the others considered this interesting proposal. I think, James said slowly, I think that the best thing to do. Then he stopped. What was that? He asked quickly. I heard a voice. I heard someone shouting. And then it goes on from there. But <laughs> they're all just like... <laughs> yeah man maybe if we pull him inside out that'll work <laughs> but i just love that earthworm is like because he fucking hates centipede he just has this moment of like what if we just like turn him inside out and they're like uh okay uh there's also this moment where there's this great weird bat thing flying around him that's never really explained or expanded on again it just shows up flaps around over the peach for a few minutes and then disappears and they're like what the hell was that <laughs> Uh, which I thought was fun. I, I, you could kind of translate to that to maybe the rhinoceros thing because it does come out of like a dark cloud. Maybe that's where they pulled that idea. I don't know. Other little detail that I really liked in the book that is not in the movie is that when they get to New York, we actually see the reactions of people in New York to this giant peach flying over the city and like air raid sirens and stuff go off and mm -hmm. there's pandemonium. They think it's a bomb. Everyone sees it falling. And then once it falls, everyone sees it falling and assumes that it's over. Like they're, they're like, this is it. <laughs> this is how we die. This is, they dropped the big one. Uh, and I just like that little view into the, um, into the psyche of the New Yorkers at the time. Mm. Uh, Cause this is again, the cold war 60s. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's also a written line in one of the, after the peach falls and they're like looking up at it, there's a line from a New Yorker. Uh, who has binoculars and the way it's written i could just hear <laughs> i could hear it so well and a man who had a pair of binoculars to his eyes said they look pretty peculiar to me i'll tell you that 
and then pretty is written p-r-i-t-t dash t-y and it's prit prit the first half is italicized pretty like i can just it, you, it's just like ah, i know exactly how i'm supposed to read that word <laughs> it's just i loved it uh and then my last note is uh once they land um all the firemen and stuff come up and they like are trying to figure out what all these giant insects on top of this peach is. And they're like, it's aliens or it's a dragon. And one of them suggests that maybe they're snozwangers or wang doodles. Again, just referencing mm. other mm-hmm. doll stuff, which I thought was fun. All right. That was all I had for better in the book. Let's go ahead and talk about what I thought was better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. There's a little gag in the movie when the odd man with the, the crocodile tongue shows up and he's like leaning in talking to James really close where he like winks at him and his eye turns white and mm-hmm. then he winks again and it's normal. I, that always creeped me out as a kid. I thought yeah, that it's, was, it's kind of spooky little moment. Yeah. That you're not prepared for. Uh, that is not in the book. Uh, I like when there's the guy shows up uh, with the camera to take pictures of the giant peach and the ants are like, Oh, a camera. And they're like posing for pictures. And then after they, he takes all these pictures of them, they're like, no cameras allowed. And they take it and <laughs> let him go. And I liked it. It fits their character and it made me laugh a lot. I like that moment. Uh, the tongue jumping into the piece of peach that uh, James eats. I think this works. This does not happen in the book. Um, because in the movie he also becomes stop motion with the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. I think we need to, a more explicit moment of him like ingesting the magic thing as he's crawling into the peach in the book. The juice from the peach is like running into his mouth and he's like drinking it. Mm-hmm. So you could have done that, but also later in the movie um, or in the book, like, he feeds the peach to like all the random kids and stuff. Like he likes it, lets everybody eat the peach at the end. And it, that doesn't seemingly do anything magical for people. Right. So I like the actual moment of the little crocodile tongue, him ingesting that. And then I believe at the end, he like coughs it out. Yeah. It like jumps out. And then he turns back normal. It's not really, it's a, maybe a little, I think I could see an argument that it's a little too, like we need to explain this too much. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how necessary that is, but I think it works. Uh, I like the detail that the bugs also specifically want to go to New York um, and kind of having them as manifestations of James's own dreams. Like they're like, they want to go to New York for their own reasons. And we kind of get all the different things they want to do there. Cause they each have their own, like, you know, ladybug wants yeah. to go to the park. Spider wants to go to the dark, creepy places, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I thought that uh, grasshopper wants to go to the museums and stuff. I thought that made a lot of sense. That is not, at all what's kind of going on in the book i sorry it is kind of a, i think implied in the book the movie just makes it a lot more explicit uh, i also liked the music number about this i think you had a note that you didn't like this but i like this the spider no, like smoky this french verse yeah this number like, is fun i couldn't decide if it was supposed to be french or russian i feel like the yeah it felt like it, yeah, it kind of wobbled back and it's forth. susan sarandon she's neither so yeah. <laughs> i think it does and the kind look of, is french yes and i swear she's french sometimes but the, towards the end there's some moments that feel very, very russian and i, I was agree. like i'm not sure what we're supposed to be doing here uh, I really like the gag where the peach is rolling down the hill and there's a rooster on the fence and it looks like the sun yes. rising and the rooster <laughs> starts to crow and then it's just the peach bowls through the fence. I thought that was an incredible gag that was not in the book. Uh, and I also like when it rolls through the fence, how it it picks up the fence and it forms like a spiral staircase around mm-hmm. the peach. 
super clever, adds some extra like levels to the peach. Other places characters can go and get to stuff. Uh, that does not again does not happen in the book. I thought it was super clever, super fun, and just added more visual interest to the peach and kind of made it its own like vessel in a way that I thought was interesting. There's a character, and you read this in the in the let me sum up. Uh, that may have surprised you, but there's a character in the book that is not in the movie, and that is Silkworm. Mm-hmm. The movie cuts this character. I think it makes a lot of sense. The character doesn't do that much anyways, and you already have the spider for the purpose that the Silkworm served, which is that they both make silk. Yeah. They both they both spin silk um, that they use for capturing the seagulls, doing all kinds of stuff. Spider can do that already. Spider is the more interesting character. And I think the book agrees because Spider does more in the mm-hmm. book than uh, Silkworm does. I just think it's kind of a redundant character. And especially in a movie where we don't want to have as many characters yeah. clogging well, things up. Well, and the Glowworm is also already like barely in the movie. Yes, Glowworm. She's which just kind of in the background. Glowworm is already kind of a, yeah, it, I would say is a more minor character in the book as well. Yeah. It's kind of a background character. Um, and so I think having another second backgroundy yeah. kind of character that is also a different worm that's that functionally <laughs> does the same thing that Spider does. Just it's kind of all redundant, and I think trimming it out makes a lot of sense. I like the moment in the movie a lot where James has an idea about what to do to uh, with with the seagulls and stuff, but then he's like, "No, nah, that's a dumb idea," and like shits on his own idea. But then they all encourage him to explore that idea. The mm-hmm. book does this as well, but just it's made more explicit again in the movie. Like in the book, James is encouraged by the ladybug as he's talking through the seagull thing. Um, but the other bugs are like, dude, you're nuts. Yeah. And and in the movie, I like that, that he's, he self doubts immediately. And then everybody else like kind of builds him up and encourages him. I thought that was a really sweet moment. I really like the scene where, cause they are, they do get really hungry in the book. And in the movie, there's this moment where centipede when they're really hungry, just starts seeing all the other insects. Yeah. As different like hallucinating types of food. them as food. I thought that was fun. Uh, it does not happen in the book. Uh, this is a great line that is not in the book. You are a disgrace to your phylum order, class, genus, and species. Say it in English. You, sir, are an ass. I thought that was great. <laughs> fun little science joke, biology joke. Uh, he says them out of order though. Or he doesn't say them out of order. He just skips some. Doesn't matter. Well, it's kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. He does say it out of order because I wrote this down from the IMDb quote. He says order class and it's kingdom, phylum, class, order. So whatever. But doesn't matter. <laughs> I just I will fact checker. That will never leave my brain. Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, subspecies. I think there's other ones involved in there, too, but. Uh, I like the little detail in the movie of them turning the stem to steer the seagulls. doesn't make any sense, but it's fun, and it's not a mm-hmm. detail mentioned in the book at all. Uh, the movie cuts a pretty fat-phobic song that is in the book, which, if you know anything about Roald Dahl, is not surprising, but um, there's a whole song singing about the ants, uh, and in particular, a whole verse about Ant Sponge, and it, it, it is yeah. what you think it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, movie cuts that out. Uh, I think love is the sweetest thing or whatever that song is called is a delightful little song. Yeah, I have that as a note, too. Um, I think it's a sweet little song. Yeah. Uh, the best song in the movie. In oh, my yes. Opinion. By far, yes. Yeah. And it's got some good songs. Like they're, mm-hmm. they're not. None of them are like incredible. But that one in particular, I think is very nice. 
Uh, and then there's a little moment towards the end where as they're blowing, they're getting closer to New York, uh, something happens. I, don't I think remember. this is when the storm starts to blow up. Maybe. The storm starts to blow up and uh, Centipede, who uh, I think is supposedly has been New Yorkers from New York or whatever, uh, says, we'll be blown off course. We'll wind up in Jersey, which is, <laughs> is very funny to me. Uh, he's very worried about ending up in New Jersey because as a New Yorker or as a fan of New York, he's not a fan of Jersey. All right, I got some things now that the movie nailed. As I expected, practically perfect in every way. Uh, the movie has this great line that is from the book that I love a lot. It does change it a little bit, but the essence is still there. Uh, I wrote this down when I was reading the book the first time, so I was very excited to see it show up in the in the film. In the film, they believe they say he says. Uh, like James's parent, the, the narrator says James's parents' trouble were over in 35 seconds flat, but James's trouble were just beginning. And I liked that moment in the book. Uh, it says, now this, as you can well imagine, this is after they get eaten. Now this, as you can well imagine, was a rather nasty experience for two such, such gentle parents. But in the long run, it was far nastier for James than it was for them. Their trouble troubles were all over in a jiffy. They were dead and gone in 35 seconds flat. Poor James, on the other hand, was still very much alive, and all at once he found himself alone and frightened in a vast, unfriendly world. That line stuck with me, so I'm glad that the movie included it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the look of Sponge and Spiker is pretty much spot on. Uh, the look of the house on the hill is exactly what I imagined. It also, the illustrations are very similar. Um, it's very Tim Burton-y, but it works for mm -hmm. this. Uh, Sponge and Spiker being narcissists, but also being cruel to each other. That little scene where Sponge is like admiring herself in the mirror, but, and then like Spiker kind of agrees with her, but then throws in an insult at the end. Yeah. They both do that. Like in the book, they both take turns like admiring themselves and the other one, like insults like, Oh yeah, you're right. But also you're, and then insults them in some way. And I just like that, that, Again, the, their their narcissism keeps them from even though they seemingly like each other, they also don't. They yeah. like, <laughs> despite their, uh, yeah, they, they seem to be their only two friends in the world, but they even kind of hate each other in their own little way, which I thought was a fun little detail. Uh, there is music in the book, uh, although I believe it's all from Centipede, and so I do like having the movie the, the movie having music makes sense again because the, the book does have music mm. again i think it is well, mostly not centipede. uncommon for for doll books to have yeah. songs in them uh yeah uh, I, I did like james singing his sad little song in the beginning as sad songs in the beginnings of disney movies go it's one of my ones i like more i don't know i like it more than let's mm. say that than the the cheer up charlie in willy wonka and mm. the chocolate factory it's like the world's my least favorite uh, sad <laughs> song in a, in a movie. It is. Um, he does get kind of an an I want song. Yeah. At the beginning of this movie, which is one of the criteria for being a Disney princess. James Disney princess confirmed. There you go. It talks to fucking he animals. He talks to animals. That's also true. There you go. Uh, the, the moment where James just immediately trips and spills the tongues as soon as he gets them <laughs> is exactly what happens in the book. Uh, right under the peach tree. Uh, the fact that James just wants friends and wants other kids to play with is like his main motivating factor in both the book and the movie. Uh, when, cause like in the movie, there's that moment where he's like watching all the kids out there and he's like crying. And then later mm -hmm. he comes down, he's like, Oh, I was hoping I could go play with the kids. And they're like, no, that, again, that's exactly his whole kind of, yeah. Motivating uh, ethos in the book. 
the centipede does chomp through the stem and set them on their way. That is how they start rolling out of there is centipedes like, I got this. Nom, nom, nom. Uh, I do love throughout the movie and it's in the book how the bugs just always kind of gas up James. They're like, you're great. You're crushing it. You're a genius. <laughs> this is very sweet uh, for a kid who's had a rough go of it. Uh, also, I mentioned that the earthworm, while the characterizations in the book aren't as strong as they are in the film, in my opinion, the earthworm, they are there subtly. And one of those being that the earthworm catastrophizes just immediately. And I thought David Thewlis is a great choice for that character <laughs> in the movie. It just makes a lot of sense. He plays a great put upon uh, person or uh, worm in this instance. Uh, the centipede song about all the weird stuff he's eaten after they're eating the peach and they're like talking mm -hmm. about all the other stuff they eat. And centipede sings this whole song about all the weird stuff he eats. That is a lot of those lyrics are exactly. From, yeah, that's probably the maybe the only song that's like a direct moment that mm -hmm. correlates to the book. Um, it's not the exact same lyrics, but a lot of the lyrics are pulled and tweaked from the book in that song oh, while we were watching this i realized i actually don't know what centipedes eat so i looked it up it's other bugs isn't it yeah they eat primarily spiders yeah there you go <laughs> which is interesting yeah uh the movie uh also ends on the and that's why james wrote this book slash made this movie mm. thing like the 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 movie ends with the narrator being the uh, the old man guy walking up to the camera and being like and he told the story so many times he decided to tell it like this or whatever he says, implying that this movie is like James's version of the story. Uh, and that is exactly how the book ends, which is the, the quote that I the intro quote that I read. That's the last lines of the book. Uh, and then uh, the other thing is that the, the movie does end my last note. The movie does end with kind of a breakfast club close, like a where are they now? What happened to them thing? Mm -hmm. uh, and some of those are the same as the book. Some of them are different. Um, like the. Uh, what, oh, what are the ones that are the same? There's a couple. I can't remember what they were, but there was some of those were the same and some of them were different than what they ended up in the book. But one of the ones in the book that does not translate in the movie that I, I thought was very funny in the movie, they ladybug is like, uh, she's like a, 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 a natal, uh, she's like she, delivering yeah, babies. Yeah. She's like a doctor. Yeah. And in the movie or in the book, it's just mentioned that she just married the firefighter who rescued them, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> that this giant ladybug just marries a human firefighter. I thought that was great. So <laughs> I know why the movie didn't do that, but I <laughs> thought it was funny, so I wanted to mention it. All right, I got a handful of odds and ends before we get to the final verdict. So I, I guess I don't know if I had ever read Doll because it became very clear to me on this reading how clear it is that J.K. Rowling was a huge Roll mm -hmm. doll fan. Her style is so clearly aped from, in some extent, aped from Roll Doll. Um, in particular, the the meanness and the way she describes people, especially people she doesn't like, yeah, is like and making evil characters fat, making mm -hmm. like all this sort of stuff is very clearly doll inspired. And then it went even further as I thought about this book. I'm like, oh, this is just. She just ripped this off for her. So <laughs> just do some quick comparisons here. <laughs> the name of the main character in this is James Henry Trotter. 
And Harry's name in Harry Potter is Harry James Potter. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, okay. That's the first one. Uh, then also, Harry Potter, parents die tragically, goes to live with an abusive aunt, and then ultimately escapes on a magical journey. Again, mm-hmm. it's broad strokes. It's I'm broad just, strokes. And, uh, and that, I, I'm not, that I'm not implying anything it. nefarious or anything here. No. I, it's clearly inspiration. I'm just saying I, it was striking to me how clearly inspired by yes. this book and yes. Doll in uh, general. Doll's fingerprints are all over yeah. the Harry Potter books. Yeah. And, and I mean, some of the, the more broad stroke stuff yeah. about like how the story gets started right. is, is it's pretty, pretty classic. common yeah. classic stuff across literature. Right, right. right. Uh, the naming thing yes. is funny, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that had never occurred to I, me. I hadn't either. But when I saw, because it's on like the last, like they say, they say his whole name constantly throughout this book. And then seeing it like fully written out on the plaque at the end, it says James Henry Trotter. Yeah. And I was like, that's just, that's just Harry Potter's name, but like different <laughs> kind of. Yeah. I thought it was wild. No, especially in the earlier um, Potter books, you can for sure yeah. tell that she was taking a lot of style cues from, from Roald Dahl. Um, Lemony Snicket as well. Oh yeah. I will say. Um, there's a lot of so. uh, clearly doll was an influence on him in my opinion oh d- or, okay you're sorry you're saying lemony snicket was also inspired by yes. doll i thought you were saying jk rowling was inspired by lemony snicket That's no i believe i don't know even the time of order of events there but well, harry potter started coming out before series of unfortunate okay. events started okay. um and you're then they both were... of them were inspired yes by okay yeah that makes sense which, uh, I mean, he was the children's author yeah, for no, makes, a very long time. Makes a lot of sense, yes. Uh, another thing that I learned while we were watching this movie uh, was that the Empire State Building was the tallest building in the world until 1971. Yeah. I didn't know how long it was considered the tallest building in I the world. I knew it was till they were, like the 70s. They were talking about at the beginning of the movie when his dad is talking about New York, he's like, well, Empire State Building, it's the tallest building in the world. And I was like, well, not anymore. No. <laughs> so then I was curious and I wanted to look up. Did you know? Did you happen to look up what overtook it in 71? Uh, was it no. Sears Tower? Uh, maybe. It would have been around the time. Because it was Sears Tower for a while, but... Yeah, for like a long time, right? Yeah, until I think the 2000s maybe when... And then a bunch of... Yeah. There was, there was a bunch of buildings in Asia, some in China, and then obviously now it's the Burj Dubai in, um, in Dubai. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, anyways. The other thing, uh, uh, our... And it's it didn't count classify because it was or it didn't count because it wasn't a building. But um, the news station we both used to work at for a while, I believe it was 69 to 70 or something, uh, was the tallest structure on the earth mm-hmm. for like a year. The broadcast tower. Um, but that's different because it's again, you can't there's not people in it. It's a yeah. Broad, you can, people climbed it, but it's not like a. Yeah, it's not a building, not an inhabited building. Um, but it was around that same time period. Anyways. Oh, uh, we mentioned um, James's I Want song mm-hmm. from the beginning of this. This is probably my least favorite song in the whole movie. It's, yeah, it's, I like it, but it's not the most lyrical. I will agree with that. He repeats it's very, very far away, like yes. eight times in a row. I agree, but I also like it because it feels like a little kid is making up a song. A That's fair. I, 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 I think it fair. works, but I don't disagree. It's definitely not the most lyrical. 
I always found the scene with the peach rolling down the hill really satisfying to mm. watch. Mm-hmm. I, I love that it's very clearly a miniature. That's what I love about it's it. It's so good. You could tell it's just a, I, a little, just, there's, an actual, it's like a real, a normal sized peach rolling down yes. a tiny little. There's <laughs> something that I love so, so much about when I can tell that movies are using miniature yes. miniatures. Like when you, you could just look at it and you're like, oh, I can tell that that's small. The moment when the dam breaks in uh, Two Towers or whatever, or it might be uh-huh. Return of the King, where the, the ends pull down the dam and yeah. flood uh, Isengard, that dam coming down, I can always tell it's a miniature and I always get a kick out of it. But there's a bunch of stuff like that. Yeah, that is... It's a good moment. Mm-hmm. It, it, the way the peach rolls, you can just tell. It's yes. not a giant yeah. peach. It's it's a normal-sized peach. It's very funny. Well, you mentioned in the prequel that one of the skeleton pirates was uh, Jack Skellington. Yes. From Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. Uh, but also one of them is Donald Duck. I did find that note. I just didn't mention it I, when I was doing that research. So yes, one of them is dressed up like Donald Duck as well. Just very interesting. For fun. Um, and my last note here was that the New York set piece reminds me of the Gotham sets yes. from Tim Burton's Batman. They might have reused them. I was wondering they if maybe they did. might have reused them. Because it's that like like grayscale, like and everything yeah. slightly off kilter. Yes. Very seedy, yes. steamy New and York. And kind of know. like a 1950s but not yes. vibe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It could be. I, I honestly could be some of the sets from that. I have no idea, but it does it does very much evoke it. Uh, and then my last note that I thought was a lot of fun is the cop that shows up at the end was this actor's been in a lot of stuff. His name's like Mike Starr. You see, I, as I recognized him because he shows up in random stuff all mm-hmm. the time. He's been in like TV shows and all kinds of stuff that like just he's everywhere as like little bit parts here and there. But he's like the main cop at the end who we see and interact with. And I love the way he talks and the way he interacts with everything. He so much feels like every version of the cop in every single Spider-Man movie. Who's like, we got your back, Spider-Man. <laughs> like who, who does the, you know, like, yes. like every moment in a Spider-Man movie, there's, or every, there's always like a cop who I think in the amazing Spider-Man, there's the moment where the, it's the construction worker and not a cop where they like move all the cranes so that Spider-Man can swing on them or whatever. <laughs> But there's like that moment in every Spider-Man movie where there's like a some New Yorker is like, he's one of us. And he's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm not doing a good New Yorker accent, but you get what I'm saying. He he is like the quintessential that character. Yes, he's playing a very like archetypal, archetypal kind of a New, York New Yorker cop yes. person. Love it. It's so much fun. Blue collar New Yorker. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get to the final verdict, we want to remind you, you can do us a favor by heading over to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or Goodreads, any of those social media platforms. Give us a like, give us a follow, whatever you got to do so you see our posts and can interact with them and give us feedback. And we'll talk about that in the prequel episodes. You can also do us a favor by heading over to uh, iTunes, not iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you can review our show drop us a five-star review write us a little or drop us a five-star rating write us a little review it helps out a lot and we really appreciate it and then finally if you want to support us head over to patreon.com slash this film is lit support us there for a few bucks a month and get access to bonus content uh at five bucks or more a month you get those bonus episodes we just put out an episode on rrr if you would like to hear our thoughts on just an incredible movie uh, RRR, you can go give us five bucks a month and listen to that. And we every month we put out a new bonus episode. And if you support us at fifteen dollars a more a month, you get access to priority recommendations, which is this was not because I picked it. 
It's mine. That's my priority <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> and now it's time for my final verdict. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterward. This is a delightful little book. It's a wonderful adventure story with a nice message about daring to dream and not judging books by their covers. It's also chock full of Dahl's usual nastiness. Nastiness that when aimed at the right target is delightful and cathartic, but when misapplied comes across as mean and judgmental. It's the fine line that Dahl walks in many of his works and one of the things that makes him compelling as an author. You can tell he was kind of a mean guy, but a mean guy who generally espoused good values, but also some not very good ones. We're not talking about those right now. The movie ends up keeping almost everything that works in the book, and it translates beautifully onto screen. The decisions to bookend the exquisite stop-motion meat of the story with live action works brilliantly, and the stop-motion is truly fantastic. The textures are rich and tactile, the lighting is moody and dramatic, and the characters' movements are particularly fun to see rendered in stop-motion. Every time Centipede's many arms did a little wave-like motion, I smiled. It's all just so neat. The movie also trims some of the fat phobia, which was a welcome edit. I think the thing that really sets the movie apart is the expanded characterizations of all the insects, as well as fleshing out the narrative to follow a more traditional framework. We set up the idea of New York, we're introduced to some of our insect characters prior to the magical experience, and we round out the evil ant storyline by having them return at the climax for James to defeat through the power of friendship and dreams. I don't think the book needed this climax, but I really do think the movie did, and it's much stronger for it. So getting right down to it, this is a pretty great adaptation. I think book lovers would adore how close it keeps most elements, but would also enjoy the changes that they did make, as in my opinion, they only elevate the story. It is a very close call, and both are fantastic, but for James and the Giant Peach, I'm giving this one ever so slightly to the movie. Fantastic. <laughs> what? <laughs> I was just responding oh, to you, you yeah. like you usually do after after <laughs> yes. my final verdict. That is true. I do say, you, are you mocking me? No, not at all. <laughs> Katie, On your birthday, I would never. Katie, what's next? Up next, we are jumping back into our summer series with part two of the Divergent trilogy, Insurgent. Insurgent, a divergent story or whatever it's called yet. <laughs> yes, we're jumping back into the summer series reading insurgent i have not started it yet so me got no I, thoughts yet i don't have high hopes based on some of the feedback that we got for part one yep but we shall see we'll find out we shall see but before that in one week's time we will have our prequel episode for insurgent where we will go over all of your feedback on james and the giant peach see what you had to say can't wait until that time guys gals my binary pals and everybody else keep reading books keep watching movies and, and keep, keep being, being awesome, awesome.